You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast. Today we are talking the intertestamental period, the non-Israeli kings, like the King of Hearts, King James, and King Supers. <laughs> but with us today, Pastor Darren Enns. Welcome to the podcast. How you doing? Doing great. That joke just set us up for success. Absolutely. It's about all I know what we're talking about today. Pastor Drew Tarwater, how you doing today? Welcome to the podcast. Oh, I'm doing great, guys. It's always fun to pretend to be historians with you guys and speculate about things we aren't that familiar with. So it's going to be good. Absolutely. I'm Rob Blasi, and today we are talking about kings and things. We're going to play like act like we're historians, and we'll start off here with uh, Drew. Could you give us a recap of last week's sermon? Yeah, before we put our historian hats on, let's talk about last week. And um, Kev preached on the return from exiles. We talked about really camped out in the book of Ezra. And when you think about returning from exile, there's usually two places you're going to go, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And so Kev talked about uh, just that that return. And, and what, we, what we see is that um, there was a man named Ezra, and Ezra was a priest. And Ezra was one that you know, really felt God's call to be involved in the return. But he's really telling the story of how the people returned. And so under King Cyrus, uh, the kings of Persia, if you remember, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem and Judea and took all of the captives back, 10,000 plus captives to Babylon. Babylon ends up falling to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, the king of Persia was King Cyrus. And so if you read the book of Daniel, you get to, to see Daniel really kind of lives through all of these transition of kings. Uh, but Cyrus has an edict for the Jews to return. And there's almost 50,000 exiles return. And there's a, a man by the name of Zerubbabel who basically goes back and rebuilds the temple in Ezra chapter 1. And then uh, a number of years later, there's a, then we see Ezra comes into play. And Ezra takes a second return of about four to 5,000 exiles back to, um, to Ju Judea, to Jerusalem, to beautify the temple and reform the people. And so and on Sunday, Kev talked about these two guys. And one of the things Dr uh, Zerubbabel is famous for is when he gets there back to rebuild the temple, the people who are living there want to help, and he tells them no. He, he really wants to, his heart is to focus on rebuilding it the right way. And so he doesn't want any outsiders to come in and help him. Um, and so, you know, Kev kind of shared about how we look at that today as Christians. But I, I think what Zerubbabel really wanted was to protect the building of the temple for it to be done right. Um, and so did he make the right choice for not allowing the people in Jerusalem that, that were in that area to help? You know, I, I think we can look back and say, well, Jesus would want us to pretty much invite everybody in to help. But I think at the time, Zerubbabel thought it was the right move to protect the, the temple being rebuilt. Same thing kind of happens with Ezra. Ezra comes back and he wants to reform the people. And one of the things he does is he, he sees that a lot of the people who are living in Judea had married foreign wives and had, had kids with those wives. And one of the things that Ezra was looking at and saying, hey, we have to, we, we can't allow ourselves to fall into idolatry again. 
So we need to protect ourselves from pagan influences. So Ezra makes the decision to, to have these men divorce their, their foreign wives who worship pagan gods. Was I think Ezra's heart in that matter wanted to purify God's people. And he wanted to say, hey, we need to start off on the right foot now that we've returned from exile. Now, we look back through the lens of Jesus and we see that Jesus wants us to care for everybody and not create widows and orphans, that Jesus would want of us, wanted it for us to, to love on these people and bring them closer to Jesus. But I think at the time, Ezra thought he was purifying God's people and reforming them to follow God. So th- these are some really hard texts to look at. Um, in the Old Testament, because we see that, you know, obviously looking at through the lens of the heart of God, God is a God of mercy and of grace, but also a God of obedience. And so I think Zerubbabel and Ezra thought, you know, they were doing things the right way. And I think we can look back and say, well, I think maybe Jesus would have us look at those a little bit differently. But at the time, those guys were really trying to honor God with their actions. Interesting. So as we talk about like historical time frame, where are we at when if if I wanted to open the Bible where you're talking about now, Drew, where where are we at? Yeah, it is really interesting. So you're probably looking at, you know, 539, 538 BC. So you've got Persia conquers the Babylonians. You can see this in Daniel chapter five, where Daniel is going to be talking about this change of power and King Cyrus coming into play. Um and so then you see Zerubbabel, he's about 538, you know, 540-ish BC. And then Ezra is going to be about five, or about, I'm sorry, almost another 100 years later. So 80 years later in around 458 BC. And you've got this, this timeline of kings now. You've got Cyrus, king of Persia. You read about him in Daniel 5 and Ezra 1. And then you've got the king Darius or king Darius I. And he lived 520 to 480-something BC. Um, and so you begin to see these new kings come in. In the middle of that, you actually have King Xerxes, who has another name. Remember, all these kings had multiple names, which makes it a little bit confusing. But you have King Xerxes, who also is known as Ahasuerus, and he is the king that marries Esther in Esther chapter 2. And then his son is Artaxerxes, and that is the king that sends Nehemiah back in 444 to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. So you, you really see these players, Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, the, the three guys that really God uses to go back and get the um, return the exiles home and also prepare the temple and the city for life after exile. And we're getting ready to talk about like the intertestamental period. What is that defined as? It's a big word, lots of, lots of syllables. Darren, what does intertestamental mean? Yeah, so in in, uh, our Bible, we have two testaments, right? The old and the new. And there's a period of time that happens in between them. And so these dates, we're talking about uh, the end of the narrative part of uh, of the Bible, the, the chronological part of the Old Testament ends here with Ezra and Nehemiah. And the dates we've been talking about here is is in like 430 B.C., um, Jesus was born in 4 to 6 B.C. And so there's a whole 400 years uh, of time here that that we have no biblical literature within our Bible. And so th- there's a question. Also, we leave the situation here in um in the hands of these Persians and all of a sudden in the in the we turn the page to the New Testament in Matthew and all of a sudden we're under Roman rule. So there's a lot of stuff that happens in here. So that's what the intertestamental it's between the two, inter meaning like in yeah, in in the middle of the two testaments. Okay, we're going to start off here with Alexander the Great. 
there and help me out with what happened here in the intertestinal period with Alexander the Great. Yeah. So do you guys remember the movie 400? Did you ever see that? 400. Oh, wait. Yeah, 300. Sorry. Oh, I, had yeah. four, <laughs> I had 400 the, years you, on the mind. You're already thinking about the sequel. I'm re- you're right. Yeah. Tonight we dine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, sorry about that. Uh, so the the movie Three Hundred. Um, it's it's a uh, a movie about the stand of Leonidas, who was a Spartan king, uh, one of the Greeks. Where the Persians, the same Persians we're talking about here, are headed towards uh, conquering Greece. So that they're, they're sweeping to the west. So Persia is around like modern day. It, it, is it further to the west of Babylon? Uh, yeah, th- further to the west, right? Or somewhere yeah, in there. Right. Again, historians. <laughs> kind of Saudi Arabia. Imagine Saudi Arabia. Yeah. So that they're conquering up to the north and to the west. They, they, they take care of Jerusalem, but they keep going. They keep going through Asia Minor, and eventually they get to Greece. Uh, they, they get all their ships out, and they, they sail over there. And this is where the, the famous story of Leonidas stands up to the entire Persian army for days with 300 soldiers because uh, the Greeks would not join together and fight. And so Leonidas is like, well, I got to do something. And so he goes, and there's the famous depiction there. So it's after this, um, the Greeks are not conquered by the Persians. And eventually over time, Alexander the Great, who is another Greek person, uh, I believe he unites all of Greece and then goes and sets out with 32,000 soldiers and just conquers everybody. This is where the idea of like the Greek phalanx comes in and the the superior fighting force that the Greeks were just rolls over all the way from Greece, from Anatolia, all the way to Babylon, and and they conquer everybody uh, in there. They take care of of the Persians. And uh, once Alexander the Great uh, gets to Babylon, um, he essentially has all of the known world conquered. Because if if you conquer a capital of an empire, that means you, you essentially have governmental power over the rest of the empire. And that empire spread all the way to India. So from Greece to India and all the way down south also to uh, to Egypt was Alexander the Great's empire. And Alexander was really young. He was only like mid-20s when they started out. But something really unfortunate for him happened when he got to Babylon. They were partying one night, and, and as the history account goes, Alexander all of a sudden starts feeling sick. And very soon he actually passes away. I think he was 35 or something like that mm-hmm. when he passed away. So he conquers like the entire known world at that time, and he doesn't actually have the ability to settle down and rule it. Um, and then what happens, because he was so young, he never set up a succession plan. And what what he, what he happened then was essentially all the generals all of a sudden began to war and fight against each other. They were located in different areas, the generals were. And so you had generals who lived in Egypt. You had one with Alexander in Babylon. You had one uh, up in like Asia Minor. And then you ha- also had the, the ruler that Alexander the Great left in, in Greece. So th- there's at least four. I think there's, there's potentially more. And it's called the Wars of the Diadochi or, or some, some word like that, which just means successors. So it's the Wars of the Successors. There's at least four. And it's kind of just a big civil war. Uh, the thing about Alexander the Great was that he spread uh, Greek culture, or what we call Hellenism, um, all the way from Greece throughout the entire empire. So that's the reason that Greece or that Greek culture is such a big deal in in the time of the Bible, because that lasted all this time up into the time of Jesus' day. Uh, in fact, one of the biggest things that happened was the the people. I, I think it was the diaspora Jews, the people who were not in Jerusalem 
they, we call them Hellenistic Jews. They adopted Greek, cult, Greek culture to a certain extent. They probably knew Greek, just like Paul did. Paul what was fluent in, in probably Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew. Um, but these people in, well, like the second century, third century BC, translated the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And we call that the Septuagint or the LXX, uh, which is Roman numeral for 70. And maybe um, you said this and I missed this, Darren, but how far away are we from Jesus at this point in the 10? It's amazing, right. really, like the 10 years of Alexander the Great that he had this much of influence in history yeah. and culture. You know, just 10 years, you know, he started at 25, died at 35. We'll give you right. a roundup to give him 15 years if you want <laughs> to say it. So, yeah, so that Alexander died in uh, 323 BC. So we're still a good 310, 15 years away from, from when Jesus is born. Uh, and so all this infighting that happens lasts for quite a long time after that. And th- there was a big event that um, that happened in uh, part of, of the scriptures. We call them the, uh, is it the Apocrypha? Mm-hmm. Or, or Deuterocanonical period. Um, yeah, I've been talking for a while, but Drew, you, you can uh, like talk about the Maccabees and Antiochus or Antiochus, however you want to say his name. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. You know, if you if you go and look at the book of Daniel, which I encourage everybody read Daniel. It's so interesting because Daniel, you know, remember Daniel gets exiled from you know Jerusalem or Judea to Babylon early on. You know, he's one of the guys that gets gets uh, exiled at the very beginning. He gets brought into the royal court. He's there with King Nebuchadnezzar and the Nebuchadnezzar's son. Balthazar, and then he's there, you know, for Cyrus and the first Darius. And, you know, and Daniel has these prophecies that he makes um, in Daniel 9 and Daniel 11, where he's talking about the abomination of desolation. And then he talks about, basically, he gives the outline of what's going to happen with his transfer of power. And so, you know, it's really interesting. In Daniel 11, he talks about, basically, he predicts what's going to happen with Alexander the Great. He predicts, you know, this Medo-Persian empire is going to be conquered by Greece. Okay, so Macedonian king Alexander the Great, king of Greece, conquers the world. Then you've got his kingdoms divided. He talks about in Daniel 11, the king of the north and the king of the south, which a lot of people think is going to be Egypt. And then um, this dude name uh, from the Seleucid, I'm going to admit this wrong, but it's the Seleucid kingdom, which would be Antiochus. And Antiochus Epiphanes was a really bad dude who ends up being um, coming down to Jerusalem and he desecrates the temple. And what we see happen is he was trying to basically get rid of the Jewish religion. So he comes to power. He makes a name for himself. He thinks that he is God. So he comes down and he, he, he basically outlawed all Jewish religious practices. And then he goes into the temple and he sacrifices a pig to Zeus. And what, this ha- what happens is it makes, um, it makes the people of Jerusalem so mad, they revolt. And this is known as the, as the Maccabean Revolt. And, and it goes from basically 167 to 160 BC. And you can, f- you can read about this in the Apocrypha, as Darren mentioned. It's not in the Protestant Bible, but you can go find the, the first and second Maccabees in, say, you know, some intertestamental writings or the Apocrypha. And you can read about this. And it's really interesting how they revolt against um, the, 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 the Romans or the Greeks at this point, um, which would later become Rome. And so just a crazy time of bloodshed. Uh, you know, Antich- Antiochus Epiphanes was killing Jews left and right. 
Um, it just was a, a really ugly situation that uh, marked a really dark period in the history of Israel. Yeah, no, when Antiochus came, uh, he 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 came in and um, yeah, he, as Drew said, just destroyed the 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 Jewish religion. Or he tried to. The thing about Alexander was that he actually allowed the the people who he, whom he conquered to worship whoever they wanted. So there was a really interesting unifying aspect to that. But then again, the 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 wars that his generals fought between each other. Some of them adopted different things, and Antiochus was one of these. He, he did a couple things. So Drew mentioned that, that he uh, sacrificed an unclean animal on the altar, a pig on the altar. He also put up a statue of himself, like in, 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 the, in the temple. Uh, he tried to reverse circumcision. I'm honestly unsure how you do that, but, but he, he tried to, to stop that from happening. And then also he enforced public baths in Jerusalem. Uh, which is Greek style. You know, you, you had public baths, and uh, so circumcision would be evident. And so people who were living there who were Greek would see the Jewish people, uh, the Jewish men at least, and, and be able to identify them. And, and of course, then cultural oppression would happen and all those kinds of things. So the the Maccabean revolt um, is where we get the celebration of Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, it's an eight-day festival around Christmas. Um where, yeah, the Jewish people celebrate this. Um, it was the last time that Israel was an independent nation. And they were independent for a while. And so if you're a Jewish person and you you believe that God is going to reestablish the Israelite kingdom uh, and bring a, a, king, a kingdom of David back and a king is going to rule, then this is a great thing. Um, but the, the, the thing that we as Christians look at some of these prophecies in the old Testament, um, my Bible study right now, we're going to look at Ezekiel 37, which really has direct, uh, ideas that there's going to be a physical reign of Israel. There's going to be a physical, um, reunification of both North and South. There's going to be a temple. There's going to be a King. And, and we, we look back at that through lens of Jesus and we can see these as messianic prophecies, but for Jewish people who deny Jesus as the Messiah, they still think that there's going to be a physical place that's going to, to happen that be, that's Israel again. And so this is a great thing. The Maccabean revolt, revolt is fantastic because they push out Greek rule and establish their own thing. The problem is that the Hasmonean dynasty, which was the, the next set of rulers in Israel, was really, really awful. There was backstabbing. There was political infighting. And they were so weak by the time that Rome swept through and when was conquering even more than the, the known world at that point. When Rome, when the Romans showed up, th- there was no resistance possible because of the Hasmonean dynasty. The, the, the kingdom of Israel at that point was so weak politically, they couldn't resist at all. They just bent over backwards, and it was really easy for Rome to conquer them. Interesting. Now, with, when, with Rome conquering everything and kind of spreading their culture, I'm, I've heard it said from other sources that this was actually a big benefit when it came to the time of Jesus, when when Jesus is telling his disciples, "Go spread the story," you know, the good news. That there's a common language around that, the, you know, the gospel could be spread that much more easily around mm-hmm. the region because there's not a lot of different cultures and languages to be have to translate it through. Yeah, it's really interesting. You know, we see in um, the book of Galatians that Paul talks about that. You know, at the right time, at the perfect time in history. Jesus is born. And there's so much to be said about this. So with Rome, they brought so many different things. They brought Roman road systems. Um, and now you had easy trade routes that you could, you could march to Asia Minor and you could march to Europe and you could get to Asia and all these different places now because Romans put in their roads. 
Um, you also had what's known as the Pax Romana, which was a peace treaty for the most part that just said, hey guys, under all this Roman territory, we all got to be peaceful together. Um, and so people tried to get together. And then you had just Greek, Koine Greek became the common language. And so if you're living at the time of Jesus, you would have spoken Aramaic. Um, people would have spoken Hebrew, but everybody knew Greek as well. And that's why our New Testament's written in Greek, um, some in Aramaic as well, but much of it written in Greek. And so, yeah, the conditions were perfect for Jesus to come and for Jesus, the message of Christ to be able to go and circulate around the Roman world. Yeah, with uh, Pax Romana and those kinds of things, the Romans uh, kind of elevated their ideals to godlike status. And so as we read the New Testament, there's there's interesting interactions between what Paul is saying or what the epistles are saying and even what Jesus is saying and, and what, what Roman rulers are saying, what Caesar was saying. There are inscriptions uh, all, all over the place where that, that brings the good news of Rome to the world. Uh, because Caesar is Lord. Caesar is bringing peace for everyone to live in harmony with each other and establish this new kingdom that is by the gods. Like how much of that sen- those two sentences I just said was like, that's the gospel message, right? So that the Greek word euangelion is how we, we, we translate uh, good news. It was that exact same word on those inscriptions that uh, Caesar is here to bring the good news of peace to the empire. Um, and so there's a lot, a lot of interactions there. And also there's some struggle that, that we read in the epistles about how, how am I as a Christian who declares that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, uh, how am I going to interact in my world um, where religion, the religion of, of uh, leftover Greece, now Rome, that they kind of infused Roman and Greek religion together, how am I going to worship Yahweh alone? but also try to interact with my society that I'm in. It's like be in the world, but not of the world. It's a lot easier for us as a Christian in the United States with separation of religion or separation of church and state to do that. But in the ancient world, uh, religion was so infused with your civic duties and living, just being a living, breathing human being in that time. It was really hard to actually do that. That's why I love that. You know, there's that moment where they come up to Jesus and they say, Hey Jesus, are we supposed to pay taxes to Caesar? And he Mm -hmm. says, you know, go, Peter, go get a, you know, go, go get, go get a fish and get our tax for us. But he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give your tax to Caesar. If, give to if God only what is I could, God's. If only I could have a miracle to pay my taxes. I know. I know. <laughs> Come on, I Jesus. I here today, like, go, Jesus, like, go grab the CPA and see what, see what we owe. <laughs> right. But uh, so as we open the Bible, we're looking in this period so you're basically going from uh, like you go from Malachi and then there's a, you know, maybe a few spacer pages that say new Testament <laughs> get to Matthew. Like there's a, about 400 years of silence between Malachi and Jesus. What? It, right. like, yeah, it is interesting. You know, you read, if you're reading through the, through the, the new Testament and you're looking in your table of contents, you know, you get to Daniel and then you've got a bunch of minor prophets, right? Hosea, Joel, Amos, you know, so many of these guys are, are writing um, to, you know, to, to Israel during the exile as well, um, Haggai. And, but then you get to Malachi. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. And what's interesting is Malachi, there's, you know, if you look at the Hebrew Bible versus the, the, you know, the Protestant or verse, you know, our Bible, the Christian Bible, they're going to be in different orders. And, and the reason is, you know, that, that the, the biblical... Um, editors that the new testament editors when we look at the christian bible when they when they look at the old testament they end with malachi and darren can speak to more of that on why but malachi sums up the whole hebrew bible that has been pointing to the fact that god's people can't be faithful to this covenant 
because they keep failing. And so, you know, God dealt with their sin. He, he judged them. They had consequences for the sin, but he never abandoned them. And that he has promised to redeem a remnant and to send a Messiah to fulfill the covenant. And then you have this 400 years of silence, as we talked about, with all of this struggle. And then you see Jesus is born in 4 or 6 BC. And so Malachi really sets us up for Jesus. But I couldn't imagine living during this time of Antiochus and um, the Hasmoneans and all of this, as their people are just longing and waiting, God, when are you going to bring the Messiah that you've been promising? And so this Sunday, we're starting our New Testament series. We're kicking into a series called A New Hope. And we're going to talk about the fact that they've been waiting for 400 years. There's all these prophecies, 300 prophecies about this. And now here's Jesus born, and he's finally here. Uh, yeah, I've mentioned the the difference between the Hebrew Bible and Christian Bible and how our Christian Bible ends in Malachi, and it's a promise of, of, of the prophet Elijah returning, and we turn the page to the New Testament, and the first character we see is John the Baptist, or one of the first characters, and, mm-hmm. and that's the new Elijah who's predicting the coming of the Messiah. Whereas the, the Jewish Bible ends with Chronicles, which is a promise for a, temp, for a renewed temple, renewed Torah, and renewed land. And it's all about oh, the physical reign uh, of what's going to happen with the new Israel. And so that's what modern Jewish people today are still waiting for. Even Messianic Jews, I attended a service once, like they, they pray for Israel. Because uh, Israel is is a new state now today, uh, since 1948, I think it was. Um, yep. A lot of conflict, of course, still in the ancient Near East about whose land is it. Um, anyway, that's that's a completely foreign topic for us. But um, yeah, what else was I going to say? Uh, yeah, just coming coming into the New Testament, there's so much um, so much interaction with the culture of that day. That, that we don't really get because it's in that 400 years of quote-unquote silence that was actually anything but silent. Um, and yeah, why do we have Rome there? I, I hope that we've you know, tried to fill in those spaces a little bit. Um, and yeah, a, a new hope is coming. It, it's not Jesus isn't coming to establish a physical reign. It is a spiritual reign of a physical people that's no longer tied to a, a place, but it's rather spread throughout, throughout the world. Um, and it's, it's all about the, like, what was the mission statement of Israel? It was to be a kingdom of priests and a, a kingdom who would point people to, to the one true God. And, uh, and they've, they've not done well. In fact, you'd probably say that they, they had failed it. Um, one of my things that I'm getting into now and I'm studying is about how, how does the New Testament, especially Paul, how does he talk about the law? Like the law we say is good. The law was great. And yet the law seemed to have this deficiency that it couldn't actually change the people. It only made sin increase, as we say. Uh, one of my favorite commentators mentioned that the law was like wa- you're walking into a dark room and, and there's something in there. There's something wrong, you, but you can't really identify it and see it. The law is like the light switch. The law turns on and illuminates the lights in the room so that you can see what's in there. You can see your sin. You can identify your sin. And then you can progress through the grace of God to not sin. But the problem with turning that light on is it doesn't actually change anything about the room. It just illuminates it. There's still something wrong with you. There's still mm-hmm. something wrong with me that cannot actually keep the law and, and can't like change things. And so within these messianic prophecies is a ton of stuff where the prophets say like God is going to change our hearts. God's going to write the law upon our hearts and, and remove our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that will be able to keep the law. And this is 
also talking about the Holy Spirit. Um, and that, that's really when we turn the page to the New Testament, we see God initiating through the birth of Jesus this new covenant, this time where he's going to write the law on, on our hearts so that not only do we know what the law is, but we're actually able to keep it and we're actually able to re- stay in a, in a relational covenant with God that is a really beautiful thing. And that's what we see as we turn the page. No, that's interesting. Uh, as we wrap this up, Drew, any final thoughts? You know, I, I think... It's, it's been so fun walking through the entire Old Testament over the course of these eight months. And what I hope that everybody has seen is that there is this, this greater story at play that God promised in Genesis 3.15 that he was going to fix what Adam and Eve broke and that he has been building a people and that he has been creating um, a community that just hasn't been able to put it together and hopefully that we can see through the history of Israel that our need isn't in us working harder or us getting better on our own. Our need is in what God is doing for us and through us. And that sets us up for Jesus. The point that Jesus, they've been pointing to Jesus the whole time throughout all of this different text that we've been reading for the course of these last eight months. And now we're going to get there this coming Sunday and we're going to see that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that has been talked about from the book of Genesis chapter 1 when God makes all things good and all things new. And, uh, but if, you, if you're um, really kind of enjoying some of the historical aspects that we just scratched the surface on today, uh, we'll put the, that timeline we're talking about, we'll put a graphic of that in the show notes. And I encourage you guys, you know, there's some good books out there, uh, some good Bible, um, Bible project videos and, and podcasts on this. But just to learn more about that intertestamental period, because it is something we don't know much about We've heard some things. We've seen some movies. We love, you know, King Leonidas saying, this is Sparta, right? <laughs> but how does that all play in together? And you're going to see that the, so much of that prophecy is pointing forward to what happens in the intertestamental period, and it all came true. So God is trustworthy. And so if, you're, if you kind of gig out on some of that historical stuff, uh, lean into that. There's so much to learn. No, Our series coming up is called A New Hope, and... Uh, Obviously, if you're a Star Wars fan, it has Star Wars ideas. There, there was an edition of our of our sermon series that had every every sermon series was was a movie title. Like Genesis was a land before time, and all this kind of stuff. All right. Revelation was Armageddon. <laughs> but it's yeah, a, a new hope. So I'm I'm really excited to to get to Jesus and show how he. He, like everything, Jesus is the new Moses, the new Elijah, the new creator God, the new, it's just, it's amazing. I love it. Mm, so good. Um, very good. Looking forward to it. Sorry, we just ran out of time, so we will get to King Supers next time. <laughs> so, but uh, really appreciate you guys. Pastor Darren Enns, thank you so much. My pleasure as always. See you next time. Pastor Drew Tarwater, thank you so much. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Darren. Talk to you guys soon. And if you have questions or thoughts you want to send to us, life at ForefrontChurch.tv or drop them in the communication cards if they're in the worship center. Thank you for listening. I'm Rob Blossom. You have been listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of More to the Story.